Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here with Jen. Hi. Zach. Hey. And we have something special for you this week. It's part of The Podium, a podcast collaboration between NBC Sports Group and Vox Media. Beginning in January, The Podium will bring you athlete profiles, daily updates, exciting stories, all from the 2018 Winter Olympic Games in Pyeongchang, South Korea. But today, before the Olympics begin, we're going to talk about something else. Not the usual heartwarming profiles of athletes, the guesses of how many medals countries will win, why skeleton is without question the best sport to watch. Instead, we're going to talk about politics, and more specifically, the way that political fights around the world shape the Olympics in ways that range from violence to bans to boycotts. I can't say at this moment what other nations will not go to the Summer Olympics in Moscow. Ours will not go. So that was the charismatic voice of President Jimmy Carter in 1980, talking about how the U.S. would skip the games in Moscow. We also could have gone with a clip of Russians talking about why they were going to skip the games in Los Angeles in 1984, or literally other examples of countries skipping for reasons big and small. And politics will hang over next year's games also. And Zach, let's start there. What's happened already? What may happen? Why will politics be a big part of what's coming? Well, aside from uh, Yoki's terrible take that Skeleton is the best sport to watch in the Winter Olympics, the thing that most worries me about the upcoming games is the fact that they're in South Korea. At a time when tensions between the United States, South Korea, and North Korea are at nearly historic highs, owing to the cycle that started this summer of North Korea testing missiles and eventually the largest nuclear weapons ever tested, and President Trump responding with his characteristic bluster and anger only when you say those things about North Korea, a country that lives in perpetual fear of the United States attacking them, they get very scared. So we're at a time now in which there's elevated tensions, fears of actual war between two nuclear-armed powers, and the Olympics being held, you know, just a few miles away from all of this. And Jen, we've got Russia. Happy, fun Russia. We do also have Russia, um, as we talked about on a previous episode and elsewhere. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee, uh, banned... Russian athletes from performing, from competing rather, at the Olympics under the Russian flag. You might remember the rousing Russian national anthem that we played that they will not be playing um, at the Olympics because it has been banned. So Russian athletes are still going to be able to compete just under a neutral flag wearing blank uniforms, I guess, neutral uniforms. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's another big blow to Russia, to Russia's international kind of prestige and is very reminiscent of throwback to the Cold War days when every kind of geopolitical fight played out at the Olympics. So we've got some fun Cold War stuff in one second, but two small updates since we last talked about Russia and the doping ban. One, Mikhail Gorbachev, who negotiated an end to the Cold War, is kind of America's favorite Russian leader. Gorby. Referred to this as like outrageous and said, it's just sports, damn it, which is debatable. But also, the Russian Olympic Committee voted to allow its own athletes to compete. It wasn't clear if they were going to. They're going to send probably 200 athletes. There'll still be a lot of Russians at the Games. They're going to be competing in a wonderfully named, and I just wanted to read this because it's so much fun, uniform with the label Olympic Athlete from Russia, (laughs) otherwise known as the OAR, um, as compared to actual Russians. But let's come back in because Russians now are already making the Cold War comparison. Like, this is the West punishing us again, like the nefarious West did during the Cold War. And there's been temper, there's been excitement, there's been drama about Olympic Cold War games going back quite a long time. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. 
That is one of the great moments in sports. This was the U.S. beating the Russian team for the Olympic gold medal in hockey. There have been movies about it, both good and bad, mostly bad. It gives you a sense, though, just of how much the U.S. cared about beating the Soviets in the height of the Cold War. And Jen, we were talking about this a little bit yesterday, but there's some great U.S.-Russia Cold War stuff, and you have first dibs on it. Yeah. So like you said, the U.S. pulled out of the um, Summer Olympics in Moscow in 1980 to protest the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The Soviet Union came back the next time around in 1984 and boycotted the Los Angeles Summer Games. So it was just kind of like, okay, fine, well, we're, we're not going to go either then. Um, but this kind of thing has actually been going back, you know, way back. So in the Olympic Charter officially, like, you're not supposed to have any kind of political demonstrations, um, protests, any kind of, you know, protest speech at the Olympic Games. Um, and everyone who, you know, participates is supposed to agree to that. And literally nobody ever does um, going back since forever. So um, even in 1908 at the um, the Games in London, the U.S. refused to dip their flag to the royal box um, during the opening ceremony. You're supposed to walk by and, and dip your flag to protest British imperialism in Ireland. So, you know, we've been we've been doing this kind of thing um, for a while. And my favorite story ever, though, is uh, it's kind of crazy. It's the uh, the blood on the water story. So at the 1956 uh, Olympics, the Soviet Union had just put down a Hungarian revolt, so a big revolt in Hungary, and a Hungarian player and a Soviet player were up against each other in water polo. And um, shit got real. Basically, um, they were shouting back and forth. There were like 5,000 Hungarians in the stands screaming at the Soviets. <laughs> There's a quote from the Hungarian saying, we were yelling at them, quote, you dirty bastards who come over and bomb our country. They were calling us traitors. There was fighting above the water and fighting beneath the water. And eventually, the Soviet player full-on clocked the Hungarian player in the face, and there's blood everywhere, and they called the game and, and stopped it. So it was this huge brawl, but it was, you know, about this broader geopolitical, like, an actual fight, right? Like, there were massive numbers of, of deaths in putting down that revolt, but it, it played out among these athletes where it was supposed to be this kind of fun, you know, can't we all come together and play sports and not so much. Exactly. You know, it's hard to imagine a time since the Cold War when the U.S. and Russia, with the exception of Donald Trump and Russia, have been at odds the way they are now. And let's dive into that a little bit. If you're Vladimir Putin and you are trying to continually sort of say we are at odds with the West, like we're now global power, the U.S. isn't, blah, 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 blah. Why now? I mean, why does it become something where in these particular games you've got U.S.-Russia stuff running as hot as it is, U.S.-Russia Olympic committees kind of openly sparring with each other. Like, why now? The Olympics have long been seen uh, by the Putin government as a mechanism for reestablishing a perception of Russian strength and dominance. The best way to understand everything that Vladimir Putin does, the most fundamental end goal, aside from keeping his regime afloat, is to establish the sense that Russia is a great power, that Russia is once again one of the world's preeminent and dominant countries. Make Russia great again. Basically, yeah, actually. Mraga. I believe, the, abbreviated. I, I believe the phrase was something like, I'm the man who brought Russia off of its knees after the end of the Cold War and the chaos of the 1990s. And the Olympics are a really high-profile competition that in Russia, since and for reasons that we'll get into later, uh, under the Soviet Union, became established and cemented as a place in which you demonstrate your national vigor and strength. And that is how Putin sees the games. That is the point of this doping scheme, right? And he 
it's hard to tell how much this matters, but in the last Winter Olympics in 2014, his popularity was not so high before the game started. Afterwards, it went up. Now, part of that is because the invasion of Ukraine was highly popular inside Russia. But part of that owes to a very strong Russian performance in the games. I don't know how much. I would say the vast majority is Crimea. But the point is, in Putin's mind, the Olympics are linked with his own popularity and national greatness. So it makes sense that he would rig a whole scheme, personally or not, to try to take control over the games and make sure Russia wins. There's also an interesting kind of historical parallel here, which is during the Soviet Union days, Russia doped the hell out of its own athletes, out of East German athletes. Like there were stories that were very literally true of women who took so much testosterone, they stopped having their periods. Like this women who grew facial hair. I mean, they really, really doped. We talked about this a bit last week, but this was, again, flash forward, this is why Russia is banned again. You had a doping scandal involving the Russian intelligence services that's led to this incredible ban, the, the furthest reaching one in history. But, you know, Jen, it's sort of like that interesting historical parallel, right? Like they've had doping before. They've had doping since. You had Russia kicked out this time. You've had Russia pull out before. But it just sort of comes back in this interesting circle again and again. Yeah, I mean, if you're, you know, I'm a kid of, of the 80s and, and 90s, right? Like I can name Russian athletes. Way to brag about being young, Jen. <laughs> That's not really that young, not going to lie. You're old I'm pretty, to me. I'm pretty old. Uh, but I mean, you know, I think every kid who kind of grew up in that era can probably name at least one Russian athlete, right? Oksana Bayul. You know, we talked about this a little bit on, on the previous um, episode, but it's not just the Soviet Union, although they did literally have millions and millions of dollars of government money put towards their national Olympics program, right? Like they raised these children up from very young ages. It was this huge prestigious thing um, to be, you know, a Russian athlete, but your life was governed from start to finish by these like really hardcore coaches. And it was because of this international prestige, but it's not just the Soviet Union. Um, Authoritarian countries especially have used um, this kind of physical prowess as a proxy of their you know, their strength, their power, um, the, you know, the strength, the the virility of their people. I mean, even going back to the infamous Nazi Olympic Games, right? So, you know, they only allowed Aryan athletes to perform, right? The, the Germans did. So it was this whole kind of showcase for national socialism, you know, the virility, the strength of the Aryan race, right? And so it's not just the Soviets. Now, to be fair, Americans are also pretty big on our athletes winning, right? Not to say that other countries who aren't authoritarian don't also have national pride, um, but it's a little bit different. It's more of a kind of um, a personal kind of representation of a broader political kind of message. Yeah, Jen, I think that that's really important. Um, and while we're going to talk and have already a lot about Russia-specific reasons why this doping was such an important priority for the Russian government and the Soviet government before it, there's also a broader authoritarian impulse. Yeah. And part of that is that when you don't have representative institutions, you don't have elections, you don't have a way of giving people a sense of control over their government, you need to generate other ways for people to feel like they have buy-in in the state, that the state represents them. That's why China today invests a lot of money, for instance, in helping train its athletes for sports that they're most likely to win in. And that's because that is part of the Chinese government's legitimation, part of what it does to tell the people, we are doing things for you, we are enhancing our national reputation, we are helping you, we are making our people great. There's an amazing moment in the Olympics quite literally millennia ago where Thucydides talks about how 
a military treaty, a big military treaty, was announced publicly and then publicly inscribed on a bronze pillar at the Olympics because that was the biggest thing going, which just gives you a sense again that this is not something new in terms of politics, but also gives you a sense of why the Olympics. I mean, Olympics is the most prominent, biggest sporting event on the planet. You have billions of people tune in, you have billions of people follow it, and that's been the case from the beginning. Now more than ever, it's important to keep learning about what's happening in the world across a wide range of topics, beyond what's in the news of the day, the week, the month. And that's why all of us at Worldly are big fans of The Great Courses Plus. It gives you unlimited access to learn from award-winning experts about pretty much anything. History, science, language, photography, cooking. There are over 8,500 lectures. You can watch them on your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, your TV. You could stream the audio, The Great Courses Plus app, so right now, our listeners can start enjoying The Great Courses Plus for free. One you might like is A History of Eastern Europe, which looks at political upheavals, borders, ethnic cleansing, ethnic violence. It's a part of the world you may not know much about, but you will soon once you listen. The Great Courses Plus, put a different way, is lifelong learning at its best. And we want you to experience The Great Courses Plus too. So we're giving our listeners an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. Here's how you get it. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com worldly you get your one free month. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. If you have a long day at work, if you have kids, if you have pets, if you have friends, the thing you most often want to do least is come home, look in your refrigerator, figure out what the hell you're going to cook, buy the stuff you need, and then cook. It's exhausting. HelloFresh comes in to try to help with all of that. It is convenient. You can choose the day you want the stuff to come. You can pause your account if you're on vacation. All the ingredients come pre-measured and handy meal kits. They're all labeled so you know which goes with which. It comes to your door in recyclable, insulated packaging so it doesn't go bad. And it makes it really easy to cook delicious dinners for less than $10 a meal, which is much, much less than you'd pay if you were having it delivered and much, much cheaper. So there's no more time-consuming meal planning. There's no grocery shopping. You don't have to plan dinner. You don't spend money on takeout for an easy night. You don't have to go to a restaurant, spend even more. Instead, the food comes to you. And it's fun to cook. Some of the stuff is ingredients you might not think of, cooking it with spices you might not normally use, with methods you might not normally use. It is legitimately a fun way to cook and to do things that are not in your wheelhouse. If you want to get HelloFresh with $30 off your first week, you go to HelloFresh.com and you enter Worldly30. Again, that gives you $30 off your first week of HelloFresh, which is basically more than one night of free, delicious, healthy meals. Again, HelloFresh.com, promo code Worldly30. Let's turn for a bit now to North Korea. I mean, in part because, obviously, that is the single biggest news event happening in our world. It's obviously the single biggest threat, Jen, as you were talking about a bit earlier. But North Korea has used force before when it comes to trying to mess up South Korean Olympics. And this is something that, until we talked about this all yesterday and planning for it, most of us, frankly, didn't know, except for you. What happened? Yeah, so uh, in 1987, uh, a North Korean spy actually planted a bomb on a Korean Airlines flight, um, killing 115 passengers, so all passengers on board. Um, and, and the person who planted the bomb, who was recruited you know, by the North Korean government, uh, specifically told the BBC later, um, quote, I was told by a senior officer that before the 1988 Seoul Olympics, we would take down a South Korean airliner. He said it would create chaos and confusion in South Korea. The mission would strike a severe blow for the revolution. So it was specifically designed, you know, this horrific, horrific, terrorist attack uh, is what it was, um, to, you know, interrupt and to cause massive chaos 
for the Seoul Olympics, right? And so what we have again is we have Olympics in South Korea, this time only 40 miles from the DMZ, the demilitarized zone, the highly militarized uh, border between North and South Korea. And there are there are other instances not related to the Olympics, but that North Koreans have, you know, engaged in provocation like this, you know, killing American um, soldiers. Uh, two soldiers were, were hacked to death. They're, you know, the seizing of the USS Pueblo. So they like to do these kind of big, provocative, everybody look at us kind of stunts. We see that with the missile tests. We see that with the nuclear tests. Um, and, you know, after they did that uh, bombing of the airliner, we put North Korea on the state sponsor of terror list because they clearly committed a terrorist attack. Um, and they're back on the terrorists list now. We just, the Trump administration just recently put them back on it. Um, they haven't really done anything like that, though. So it's kind of an interesting um, kind of parallel there. But, you know, the reason kind of more broadly is one, you know, they can do that because, it, you know, they're trying to make a point to the U.S. And, and South Korea. But also, like we were saying earlier, you know, the Olympics more generally, all eyes are on it, right? Like, Everyone, even if you don't really care about sports, people tend to just watch it. It's this huge spectacle. You know, whoever, which country, whichever country hosts it, um, it's it's a national spectacle, right? They bring out, you know, I think when Brit when Britain did it, they had the Spice Girls come out, the London Olympics, which is a great representation, I guess, of everything British culture, apparently. <laughs> I don't really know. The preamble to the UK Olympics was super weird. It was, it was all like bizarre. a pantomime of British history. Yeah, it was, it was very it confusing. Was very I mean, the, the, the preamble to the... Vancouver Olympics was even better because you've got like beaver hunters coming down from the sky. It was fantastic. <laughs> but if you remember the Chinese, you know, the, the Beijing Olympics, right? It was this, a lot of countries try to get it. It's meant to be this kind of coming out party, right? It's like, we are now this important big country. We can host the Olympics. Come look at everything. And, you know, Beijing pulled it off, right? Like they had these massive spectacles with just like hundreds and hundreds of people and kind of lockstep um, and, you know, again, it's it's kind of this spectacle that everyone's watching. And I think probably the most emblematic uh, example and most horrifying were the 1972 games in Munich, uh, where eight members of the Palestinian Black September terrorist organization took 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team hostage. And it was this kind of massive spectacle. It was broadcast on international news. You know, it was horrifying. It ended up with all of the 11 Israelis and five Palestinians and a West German policeman all being killed. The reason that Black September chose to do it at Munich, at the Olympics, was for that same reason, right? It was to bring the kind of Palestinian cause to the international stage. That was the stated goal because they knew, you know, if you want to get people talking and paying attention, this is a huge spectacle. It's well, a place where everybody's watching. So what you're saying is that the logic of the North Korean state is very similar to the logic of a terrorist group, right? North Korea committed actually committed an act of terrorism, but they did so because— their goal is to get attention. Attention puts pressure on the rest of the world to try to accommodate their demands, to try to do something to deal with the fact that North Korea is threatening specific countries, specific people, even the games. And that gets them the kind of concession that they want, and it gets them the kind of recognition that they want. I mean, I think it's you can go a step further because we talk about this a lot sort of on air and also off air, whether North Korea is rational and if it is, what, it, what it, the goal it has actually is. And in the case of the bombing in the 80s, there was a specific goal beyond so chaos, beyond trying to scare people. It was they want to make other countries rethink sending athletes to the Olympics. So it isn't simply that they were trying to get attention, although they were, 
or willing to use bloodshed to do it, which they also were, obviously. But they were trying to accomplish something very specific. That's a good point. Um, which is, again, very interesting. I mean, it's interesting in the context of North Korea specifically, but it's also interesting in the context of politics of the games because you have moments that are purely symbolic. One that is not geopolitical, but is really interesting, I think, for a lot of Americans is the one they know about, which was in 1968 in Mexico City where you had black athletes put gloves onto their hands and hold them up in protest. Kind of an interesting precursor to what's happening now with athletes in the NFL kneeling for the same reason, police brutality, treatment of, of black America by white America. But it is interesting because what you may see are both symbolic gestures in these coming games. Who knows what the Russians will do? You can imagine a Russian athlete pulling a mini Russian flag out and sort of waving it around on, on the podium stand. And you could also imagine North Korea, they're not going to nuke South Korea before the games, but you can imagine North Korea using violence again to try to again persuade countries not to go. Right. Again, and, and I want to be clear, we don't know for a fact that North Korea is planning to do anything at all, right? This is just a speculation um, because they've been so provocative in the past. And also, you know, very recently, again, as Zach mentioned earlier, you know, we're at this kind of fever pitch. It, it's kind of a running, not joke, but, you know, kind of story in, in the newsroom that, you know, we're always at heightened tensions with North Korea, right? Like North Korean tensions are always heightened. Um, but this is very literally at a higher level than we've seen probably since the Korean War in the 1950s. So because the spectacle is happening 40 miles away from from the border with North Korea, because we are at a fever pitch with kind of trading insults back and forth, threats, missile tests, overflights by the U.S., we're doing missile testing in terms of our missile defense. So because of that, there's just this fear. And the South Koreans in particular have asked the United States to please hold off doing these military exercises that we do, where we do like overflights of, uh, you know, along the Korean Peninsula to kind of show a force to, to show North Korea, you know, we're not backing down. We could bomb you if we wanted to, you know, don't try us. And we have these regularly scheduled exercises that always happen. Um, and the South Koreans uh, are explicitly asking, could you please wait till after not just the Olympics, but the Paralympics, wait until everything's done um, to try to tamp down the rhetoric and everything to try to just let this go off. Because again, South Korea has a lot invested in these games, right? So it's not just obviously like the, the physical danger, but if people think that there's danger and they're not going to, you know, maybe go and buy tickets, and then that's a huge financial loss for them as well. Well, Jen, I, I would question the assertion that you started with that this is the scariest period since the Korean War. In some ways, it's the scariest, but it's not the highest tension. I would say the highest tension at least in recent memory, is, was in 2010 after North Korea attacked and sunk a South Korean destroyer. Uh, the reason I bring that up is not just to nitpick about history. Yeah, no, it's, yeah. It's because under Kim Jong-un, North Korea has a history of more provocative behavior right. than it does under either his, uh, either his father or his grandfather. They're willing to take more risks. And that was one of them. That was an early Kim Jong-un risk, but it was a Kim Jong-un risk. And now you have an Olympics, which is historically a time of high pressure, and you have a U.S. government that is much more inclined to use force than so the past the one. that's the reason why I think the tensions are heightened, more heightened this time than last time. But you're right. I mean, we did, that was the closest we had come to full-on war, but the U.S. administration on purpose backed down and didn't retaliate, which they would have had, you know, U.S. or South Korea or both, had every right to retaliate, right? Like, that was a military attack. But I think, you know, and, and Zach, you've written about this, that I think there is a piece of that, and that is, you know, Trump himself and this administration being much more, at least rhetorically, 
forceful and aggressive and belligerent and willing to talk about unleashing fire and fury like the world has never seen on North Korea. So I want to end here, which is that there's a propaganda issue, not just for North Korea, right? Like if you're South Korea, this matters to you more than it may have mattered to you before because you're trying to say to the world, we are not scared. We are not going to bow down to North Korea. We're not just going to retreat back into our shell because North Korea is threatening us. There's a real possibility of war. And it's worth remembering that too, you know, that there is a real gain for South Korea. There's a real risk for South Korea, but for South Korea in particular, these games are very sensitive because so much is happening around them and they want to show the world that they're willing to stand up to it. I want us to try to end on a less horrifically depressing note, which is this. What is, to each of you, the single sport you most want to watch, gamble on, or watch? You know where I am, which I'll come yeah, back to in a second. Yeah, gamble on is but, just you. But where Let's do be you, clear about this. Well, Probably. Listeners, you all know that Yochi loves gambling. It's important that you know that. And why I may be impoverished and or wealthy post-Olympics when when our producer, Jillian Weinberger, comes back from three weeks in South Korea. But favorite sport, Zach Beecham. I think I'm contractually obligated because I'm marrying a Canadian to say hockey. Like, But that's not my personal favorite winter Olympic sport. Don't, um, don't, don't try to blame this on your, on your lovely wife to be. What's your <laughs> favorite Olympic sport? Uh, man, I see. I actually like the summer games better. Um, and so there I have much stronger preferences. In the Winter Games, uh, I think I really enjoy the ones with guns. Um, they're super entertaining. <laughs> they're just skiing Zach down a slope. super, like, anti-gun. Oh, yeah. Confiscate all and the guns. Yeah. And Canadian. And I'm from Texas, and I'm pro-gun, and I don't like the gun sports. No, confiscate all the guns and give them to Olympic athletes so they can do more sports than shooting. <laughs> wow. that that That's the hot take I was not expecting, but I love every second of it. Um, so for me, uh, like I said earlier, I'm a kid of the 80s. Figure skating is my jam. I cannot personally do it. I would fall down. It's There's something about watching it and just like wincing when they do like a triple Lutz or a triple Axel and you're like, oh God, they're going to eat it. They're going to fall. They're going to fall. And they don't. And you're like, whew, that was amazing. Or they do and you're like, oh God, they did. They fell. I'm obsessed with it. I love watching it. I think it's fantastic. The costumes are ridiculous and over the top. The music is hilarious. Uh, the facial expressions are everything. It's fantastic. So the part of me that's like kind of wishing that in an alternate life, I was not a dorky journalist, loves skiing because I ski and I watch these guys and think, holy hell, the difference in skill is so startling. And, vast. and gals. In every gender, gender identity, proclaimed gender you is burn. astounding. But it is skeleton because there is rarely a sport whose actuality and name better line up. This is a sport where you literally, as a person, strap yourself to a sled face first shoot down an ice chute at speeds of 80 to 100 miles an hour, and it is bonkers. It's essentially just flinging yourself down down a mountain, right? Face first. Face first. And you might literally, at the end of it, be a skeleton. And so I love it. So skiing for it's me, fantastic. which is just flying face first down a mountain dangerously. With that, we'll end this week. To subscribe to the official NBC and Vox Media podcast from the Winter Olympics, just search The Podium wherever you listen to Worldly and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. As always, thank you to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, soon getting ready to leave for South Korea, which will make us very jealous. To our unusually well-dressed engineer, Peter Leonard, our social media manager, Julie Bogan, and we'll be with you all next week.